Hey, good morning, gang. Uh, happy New Year's Eve to you. I can't believe that the year is almost over. I don't know if it's been this way for you, but it certainly feels like this for me, that 2019 has just been a blur. Uh, the longer I live, the more life seems like that, like it just whizzes by oh so fast. Uh, but it's good to be here with you on this last uh, day of the year before we enter into 2020. Uh, I am... I figured we'd do something that has a little something to do with becoming a new you. After all, the Bible does talk about that. The Bible has a lot to say about being a new creation. Uh, the way the world tends to, uh, of course, emphasize being a new creation is by pressing down, bearing down, you know, signing up to go to the gym, uh, making sure that you pay off all your debts, etc. You know, there's all sorts of things that you'll hear today and in the next week as we enter into, the, into the, the new year. And there's, I don't want to, um, you know, like sometimes us, you know, Grace fellas uh, can almost be too down and out about that. I don't want to downplay that. I think it's good to seek to, you know, work on your health and to try to develop new habits. I think that's all good. Uh, it just, it's just not gonna make you a new creation. Uh, at, the, at the end of it all, you're still going to be you. Uh, we need something deeper and bigger to make us a new creation, as it were. And uh, that is what our, our time today will be discussing. So we're going to look at a passage probably familiar to many of you, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Forgive me if I don't acknowledge your presence with me today. I actually can't see you on the device I'm using. I can't see who's there. So good morning to you all, whoever's there. Here's the, here's the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe no clearer uh, statement of the gospel than that last verse there, and of course we'll talk about it in just a second. All right. Uh, a while back, I came across an interesting article in the uh, National Post. A column was written by a priest named Raymond D'Souza, and the title of it was, quote, Charlie Sheen's Search, Search for God. Now, uh, for those of you who, who may not know or might not remember, Sheen uh, had quite a few very public problems a while back, boozing it up and being high and using women and all sorts of things. I mean, it was, for a period of time, it was like everyday news, and it was just a, a, a dumpster fire to watch. It was chaos every night. And all this stuff led his, uh, the television uh, network that he was working for to fire him 
So anyway, uh, thinking that that article might tell us, you know, a conversion story about the actor or something, I began uh, reading it, and it turns out it wasn't really about that at all. As far as I know, Sheen has not converted to the Christian faith, but rather it was about how Sheen's destructive behavior actually does show that deep down what he's really looking for is indeed God. Uh, Quoting G.K. Chesterton, the priest D'Souza wrote, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. The same could be said about drugs, alcohol, uh, even good things, love, family, virtually anything in this world. The human being is uh, prone to worship and to try and find true meaning in something, no matter what that thing is, as long as it seems to fill, at least temporarily, this void inside of us. Now, what what void is that? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So I think what that means is we have this sense that we're, we're made to live forever, we're made for something more, we're meant for eternity, and that sense Uh, according to Ecclesiastes, was actually placed there by God. But here's the problem. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, all of us have been born into sin, and the wages of sin is death, and the wages of sin is emptiness, and the wages of sin is brokenness, but we still have this sense that eternity is meant for us, wrestling around in our hearts. So what we do is we reach out to find something that we can try and be satisfied with, something that will fill us up. And because of this sin nature in us, the things man naturally reaches for rather than helping him or her lead to death. So Luther and Calvin and the various other reformers could say the human heart is an idol factory. Instead of reaching out and finding the true God, the heart uh, finds false gods of our own making, money, power, sex, you name it, we we look for it. And and there's all, everything, anything can become this, this idol. But it doesn't satisfy Charlie Sheen, it doesn't satisfy us, it doesn't satisfy anyone because as the church father Augustine says, the heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. That is only when the heart has received the true God can there be any sense of peace. Only after the human heart is renewed, after its savior, become a new creation, a new heart, only after one as that, can there be any real sense of satisfaction or, for that matter, real contentment in the light of all the other things of life? And the only way we can become new creations is if the true God over all eternity is reconciled to us. That's what the passage is about today. The word reconciliation basically means a, you know, restored friendship or or relationship. And that's what the passage declares. So, So how does he do it? What does he do in order to reconcile a rebellious creation with himself? Well, the passage says, first, God overlooks. Listen to verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, the words I want to focus on there are those words, not counting. In Greek, it's melogizomai. It's the sort of term that was used in accounting practices. And, and the idea is that it was the overlooking of a debt. The, uh, the Bible expresses this thought in, in many similar places. But let me just give you a couple other examples. Uh, Romans 3.25 says, speaking of the cross of Christ, 
God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had, quote, passed over, megalogizomai, former sins. Acts 17.30, Paul is preaching to a crowd of non-believers, and he says, the times of ignorance God has megalogizomai, overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So the illustration for you is probably pretty obvious. It, you know, you imagine going on a spending spree with your credit card. You seem to have no limit. You just spend and spend and spend. You know you don't have the money to pay off any of it, but you don't care. You've lost your mind for a little while. You want stuff, and so you're going to get stuff, and Amazon exists, and you're going to use it. So by the end of it all, you've bought a new house, a new car, a Bentley for that matter. I bet you you could probably get that stuff on Amazon if you looked. You've dined at the most wonderful restaurants. You've been to Otto in uh, New York City. You've gone to Italy. Uh, you've, you've done it all, and you've had a great time. But then you know the dreaded day is coming. The credit card statement shows up in the mail. A little bead of sweat <laughs> starts to come down the side of your face. You're not looking forward to what's there, but to your great surprise and shock and awe when you open up the bill there is nothing held against you. The debt has been overlooked. That's the idea here when it says, my God overlooks the debt. We owe it. He acknowledged it's not as if he doesn't know it. We know it. And yet, even though our sin has caused so, so much uh, debits in our account, God overlooks that and thereby makes it possible to reconcile creation to himself. So that's the first thing I want you to notice in this text, God overlooks. Second thing, in order to reconcile us, God appeals to us. I find this to be almost mind-blowing. You know, sometimes we can get so into uh, the sovereignty of God, which is a true doctrine, that we almost mock the idea that God would appeal to us, but the scripture here says that very thing. The way he does it is through people. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Yes, there is a sense in which God does. I'm sorry. Yes, he kind of does beg sometimes in the scriptures. All day I've held out my hand to a stiff-necked and obstinate people, but they were not willing. That's the God presents himself in this, even though he is sovereign and huge and can do anything he wants, he presents himself as this loving, almost desperate husband or desperate father sometimes to his people. God makes his appeal through the, through the preacher, and so the preacher says here, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Jesus came when he was in the flesh appealing, repent for the kingdom of near. The kingdom is near. The apostles came saying the same thing, preaching the gospel of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to all who could hear God making his appeal through ambassadors. Now that word ambassador, of course, is still used today by uh, government officials, and an ambassador really has one job, folks, declaring exactly what their leader wants them to say. They don't change the message at all. They may be creative about how they deliver the message, that's true, 
but the message is exactly what the king wants them to say, period. And yet, there is a skill to being an ambassador. I mean, for starters, you, you probably have to know the language most of the time of the place you're appealing to. You have to know the customs and the values of the culture you're speaking to so you don't unwittingly offend people. You need to be conscious of how you communicate the message you're bringing in order to be heard by them. You need to live amongst the people you hope to reach if you would be an effective ambassador in the political world. And I would say the same goes for those who make their appeal on behalf of Christ. What is the message that we have, we ambassadors have to proclaim? Well, it's very simple. And oh, how often we get off track. But here's the message that no matter what you've done, world, how disfigured and scarred sin has left you, God has restored friendship with you through Jesus Christ. That's the message. It is not morality. It is not our political views. It is not the hundred thousand distractions that you hear preached about from so many pulpits across America. It is that God has reconciled himself to the creation through Jesus Christ. That's the message. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people on the streets of New York City who have no idea that's our message because we have blasted out so many other distracting things instead. You know, people always are afraid, especially in, you know, the evangelical world of ruining their witness. And the way that they think they'll ruin their witness is generally they associate it with like a sin or failing in some way, a moral failure. There's some truth to that. But you know, we've really ruined our witness by much more than by, by not necessarily specific sins, but by making ourselves so identified with morality and politicking, it would be much better if we actually just spent time talking honestly about who we are and why we need to be reconciled to God just as much as anybody else. But that's my hobby horse. I go off on that all the time. Let me, let me give you a great illustration, a favorite illustration of mine of what it looks like for God to reconcile himself, to, uh, to make this sin-scarred world friends with him. Uh, in her memoir, The Whisper Test, Marianne Bird shares the power of a godly type of love in, in her life. Uh, she was born with multiple birth defects. She was deaf in, in, uh, in one ear. She had a cleft palate, a disfigured face, crooked nose, lopsided feet. Uh, and of course, as, as a child, Marianne suffered not only the, uh, the physical impairments, but also the emotional damage inflicted by other kids. As we all know kids can be pretty mean to anybody that looks different. Oh, Marianne, her classmates would say, what happened to your lip? And she would say, I, I, I cut it on a piece of glass, even though that wasn't true. One of the worst experiences at school that she reports is the day of the annual hearing test. The teacher would call each child to her desk and the child would, would cover first one ear and then the other. You've probably done this before. And then the teacher would whisper something to the child like, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. This was the whisper test. And if the teacher's phrase was heard and repeated, the child would pass the test. Pretty simple. Well, to avoid the humiliation of failure, because of course Marianne was deaf in one ear, she would always cheat on the test, secretly kind of cupping her hand over her one good ear 
so that she could still hear what the teacher said. Well, one year, Marianne was in the class of Miss Leonard, one of the most beloved teachers in the school. Every student, including Marianne, wanted to be noticed by her, wanted to be her, her pet, so to speak. And then came the day of the dreaded hearing test. And when her turn came, Marianne was called to the teacher's desk. And as Marianne cupped her hand over her good ear, Miss Leonard leaned forward to whisper, this is what Marianne writes, I waited for those words which God must have put into her mouth, those seven words which changed my life. Miss Leonard did not say, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. What she whispered was, I wish you were my little girl. That is essentially the thrust of the appeal God brings to us in his word through his ambassadors. He is saying to the world, I want you to be mine. Yes, I see your scars. Yes, I see the ways that you are imperfect and I want you still. You are mine. Okay, but we still have a huge problem, at least in theory, right? How can it be that God overlooks our sins if he's a just God? I mean, the word says that God is totally just. Justice demands wrongdoing be punished. How can it be that God appeals to us, telling us we're reconciled to him? God can't even be in the presence of sin, the word clearly tells us, and yet he's telling sinners somehow that we're loved, that we're reconciled. Well, the answer to that question is found in the last point of how God reconciles creation, and that is he exchanges. Oh, the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news. My sin for his righteousness. Jesus Christ, completely man and completely God, perfect in every way, receives the debt that my sin has incurred and is punished for it on the cross. He willfully, gladly takes it because he wants us to be his. And in exchange, we are given his perfect righteousness. And in doing this, God's perfect justice is satisfied. We are seen now as indeed new creations. As Isaiah says in his prophecy, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Romans 8.3 says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Therefore, God can indeed declare, you are reconciled. Everything that is Christ's is given to us. Eternal life, hope, joy, peace, assurance, and victory. Everything that we find ourselves ultimately searching for in drugs and in sex and in booze and in family and in money or whatever, all the things that we thought would bring meaning to us ultimately are found through this exchange with Jesus Christ. So, Paul says, be reconciled to God because you are reconciled to God. Just accept that reality. I'll close with a quote from A.B. Simpson. 
He says the gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the broken heart comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. So, Enjoy your reconciliation, you new creations, you. See you in 2020. God bless.